Um, would you turn your Bibles to the book of Judges? We're going to have a standalone today. I, I'm going to just share something that's on my heart. Uh, this is a story, a narrative that I have found in counseling. There are certain characters in the Bible that really kind of encompass just the day-to-day aspects of living. There are certain people that think a certain way that represent a large sample size of people in society. And what's interesting about this story is I have not found a more accurate case study thousands of years later as to how we live our lives and how we think and the mistakes that we make as I have found with this character who on the outward looks nothing like us. On the outward, really lives nothing like us with the rules and regulations and the religious things that are going on in that day. Uh, but there are themes in, in just the interactions that he has with this person that he encounters and the pride that's in his heart and the sin that's being luring him in. I, I thought to myself, I want to visit this conversation as a standalone sermon because in all of my years of doing this, I've just never found someone that's more accurately a describer of what's going on all around us. And even, hear me say this clearly, not just all around us, within us. And the character's name is Samson. And so as you turn your, your Bibles to the book of Judges, you can find stuff on the screens as well. I want to I tell you a little bit about him. My main, thought, my main thought is this about Samson, that you will find a little bit of Samson in all of our lives. If you are male, if you're a female, you, you can relate to this very familiar script. The familiar script of Samson's life and our life is this, that I'm going to give my affection and I'm going to give my worship to a person rather than God, and I'm going to live off the adrenaline of the chase as a quick fix when my life is overwhelming and not exciting. I'm going to chase things that have no capacity to produce and are just going to eventually let me down, but in my addictive tendencies, I'm going to just chase that rainbow. There's going to be a pot of gold at the end of it, and how many of you have lived that way at a certain point in your life, or maybe you walk into this space and that's the way you're currently living, only to find out that you get to the end of the rainbow and it's not that gold that you thought would be there. That's Samson's story. Samson, unlike all of us, we've never had this, Samson has some relationship problems. I know all of you come to church today and all you've ever had is relational bliss, but that's not his story. That's where you laugh, but we're just gonna move on, okay? Samson's story is once upon a time, and this is where it looks different than ours. Once upon a time, there was a man and a woman who could not have any kids, and an angel showed up and said, you're going to have a boy. That, that's not really that unique to Scripture. That happens. Uh, the, John the Baptist, Sarah and Abraham, and so it happens in the story of Samson's parents. They say, you're, you're, you're without child, and now God is going to give you a child. This child's going to be special. He's going to take a Nazarite vow, which would have been unique because that was something that people typically chose, but in Samson's case, the Nazarite vow chose him. He was consecrated before the Lord before he, was ever, uh, before he was ever born. There was all sorts of rules attached to the Nazarite vow. There was things that don't really make sense in today's culture, like they couldn't eat grapes or anything made from them. Uh, they couldn't drink wine. You can connect the dots there. That kind of makes sense. Uh, couldn't touch anything dead, no dead bugs. Couldn't cut your hair. Right? So you couldn't cut your hair basically because then when you did not cut your hair, everyone would look at you and go, oh, he must be taking a Nazarite vow. And so Samson, we know, had this also special superpower. He was incredibly strong, supernatural strength. And if you went to Sunday school for any length of time, you know that his strength was 
God ordained, and it was attached to the fact that he could not cut his hair. And so what we also know about his character is he didn't just have physical strength, he had spiritual deficits. And so people would look at him and say, God must be behind this, look at all that he can accomplish. But in Samson's heart, like so many of ours, he has these giftings and he starts taking them personally. He starts seeing himself as the one that can produce instead of realizing God's doing this work within me. And so all throughout his narrative, what you see really is the title of this message, Samson had women problems, but that's just a surface level issue. There's an issue behind the issue. Samson had discipline problems, and Samson had unhealthy boundaries. You see that through the entire narrative of his life. And boundaries are just simply defined as guardrails, things that God puts up in your life not to hurt you, we'll get into this later, but to protect you. And in Samson's own prideful heart, he thinks he knows best, and he just says, you know, God, I'm gonna do what I wanna do, I'm gonna have the boundaries that I wanna have, and I can do what I want, and I don't honestly care who says I shouldn't do these things. And this is shocker alert, that doesn't go well for him. And so all throughout his narrative are these female problems in his life. It starts with his first job, he's a border guard, remember he's incredibly strong. And he's a guard from Israel to the Philistines and he becomes a leader and a judge in Israel. And the biggest problem in his life at that point in time is he would not stay on his side of the border. He kept creeping out at night into the Philistine area and meeting up with women. He kept violating this boundary and it manifests in chapter 14 of Judges in this way. The Bible says Samson went down to Timnah and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and he told his father and his mother. He says, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And this is what he has the audacity to say next. He says, now get her for me as my wife. This was a massive rule violation. These people did not love God. These people worshiped false idols. They, they killed babies. They were not pleasant people. They were violent people. They were God's enemy. And But his father and his mother said to him, so they bring it to light. He said this, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of the people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? There was no love lost between these two camps. You remember the story of David and Goliath. This has a standing history. And so he says what so many of us say in different ways. You say, I want to do what I want. I know these are the rules. I know these are the boundaries and the guardrails. Literally, he's working the border, but he's saying, I just want to do what I want to do. And he doesn't even have the energy to do it himself. He says, go find me a woman. And then the story progresses. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. My eyes being the key phrase there. God says this but I want to do this. I have not found a character that looks more like us than Samson. Get her for me. If any of you are a product of a certain time period, you are familiar with the better of two movies made, the old school movie of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. No offense to Johnny Depp, but he kind of killed that for me. But I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen the movie? You guys remember that one girl, what's her name? You're toting Violet. Violet, no, that's the wrong person. What's the other one? Thank you. A word from the Lord. Veruca. What does she sing? What does she want? She wants what? Her dad's rich. He's not disciplined in his life. I mean, he just looks like a hot mess, and he's stressed out by his spoiled little brat daughter, 
And what does she first say? Just testing your information on Charlie and Chocolate Factory. What does she want first? She wants the golden ticket. And then she gets the golden ticket. And then she gets in there. And they all have their, you know, seven deadly sins. But hers is absolute selfishness and greed. And she sees what? She sees the golden goose. Do you remember that? Are you tracking? She falls. She's the bad egg. And she says, I want the golden goose, Daddy. I want it. And she wants to wrap it up all in her pocket. It's her ball of chocolate. What does she say? I want it. Now wake up. Come on, guys. This is good stuff. This is good teaching. She wants it now. She looks like Samson. She's a spoiled little brat, and no one likes her in the narrative. But she thinks what we think. She thinks the rules are such, you know, Wonka's saying, no, you can't have that. And she's saying, I want to do what I want to do. This is a narrative that's been running consistently since we ate the apple. Get her for me, he says. She is right for me. And so they get married. It doesn't go well. He ends up humiliating the Philistines. They kick him out. And they keep his wife and they marry her off to someone else. And ultimately, she's burned alive. It is a disgusting narrative because they are people that do not love God. And so then the, the, the story gets even thicker. We're just going to kind of walk through it. We're not going to read all of it. He finds another woman in the mix. That doesn't work out. Again, he says, don't tell me what to do. And time and time again, his pride is welling up and sin is blinding him to the call that God has on his life. And now the story slows down and it just stays in a certain pocket. And this is the pocket that we're all familiar with. Then he meets what he thinks is the love of his life. It's really just the lust of his life. And as the story slows down, he meets his most famous partner, Delilah. And so when you, when you read this, I remember the first time I really absorbed this story. I was a freshman in high school at Bible camp. And a youth pastor was telling this story. And as he was telling it, I realized that the stuff I heard in Sunday school, as you get a little older, you're like, oh, there's, there's actually more to this. And it's, it's kind of inappropriate, and it's intense, and it's adult-like. And I remember reading this story through the lens of now reading the Bible for myself and hearing a youth pastor talk about it. And I thought to myself as a 15-year-old who knew nothing about life, how could this guy be so stupid, right? Have you, have you thought about it like that? You, you look at his story and you go, how could he be so stupid? And now as a 42-year-old, I still think that logically, but emotionally I go, I've been there on some level. I kind of know on an emotionally intuitive level how he could have gone where he went because my life hasn't been exactly perfect. Now, praise God, I've been married 20 years and that hasn't been my issue but when you look at it through the lens of chasing the rainbow and saying, God, I want to do what I want to do, we've all been there. We come into this space with lives that are less than perfect. And there's been times in my life where although I haven't done that, I have been just that stupid chasing the pot of gold at, at the end of a rainbow that doesn't exist. What I've also come to realize is this, that when it comes to this issue of relationships, people can get crazy. People can chase things they never thought they'd chase, pursue things they never thought they'd pursue, and believe things, look at me, believe things they never thought they would believe because when emotions are high, wisdom is low. And so Samson is a story of male stupidity on steroids, and if you live long enough, you've either been there or you've known someone. And through his lens and through his pride and through his arrogance, he, he kind of lived by a set of dominoes that fell. And the first domino that fell wasn't that he was with Delilah. The first domino that was in place was God said to live a certain way, and he said no. And he probably thought some of these rules, if you're anything like me, some rules, if they don't make sense to you, you don't want to follow them. He probably thought some of these rules are ridiculous. I don't have to worry about that. Why, why can't I go to the land of the Philistines just a little bit? 
Uh, why, why can't I partake in some of these behaviors? They're not really hurting anyone. And so he has these boundaries that God's put in his life to protect him. And he let the first one fall. And look at me when I do this because you know how this works. With dominoes, all you have to do is you have to hit what? The first one and then they all start falling. And that domino on the left was probably seemingly something innocent. But that domino at the end was his life absolutely being destroyed. And it just fell into place like a massive train wreck in his life. All because of his pride and his lack of boundaries and his lack of reverence for what God called him to do. He thought the rules didn't apply to him. Verse four of chapter 16. After this, he loved a woman, we're just fast forwarding here, whose name was Delilah, the one we've all heard of. And the Lord of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, so the Philistines are the enemy, they wanna kill him. And they want to take out God's people, but he said, the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him. And the way that translates better is lure him. Any fishermen or fisherwomen in the crowd? It's this idea that you have this lure, and then under that there's a hook, but you can't see the hook. You just see what's enticing. And so to seduce is to lure and see his great strength and where it lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that he may be uh, bound and humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And so she's really, this is the way it best translates, she's digging her hooks into his soul. And there's this slow fade in his life where he's now seduced. And in verse 6, so Delilah said to Samson, this is where it gets super practical. Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Now, I know that he is not thinking through a clear lens, but stay with me in the narrative. Isn't it common logic that at this point in the narrative, he's going, something doesn't smell right? Are you tracking with that? If someone wants to know where your great strength lies and she's a part of the enemy's camp, wouldn't you possibly be thinking that this is a setup? And Samson, in his arrogance, says to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. And so I don't know where he even gets that idea. But the next thing we see is she actually lives that out and she tries to set him up. And verse 8 says, Then the Lord of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. And now she had been lying in ambush. Uh, now she had, been, had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. And so he thinks it's funny on some level to just test the fire and throw it out there and, and tell her something that's not true. And he sees, in fact, that she's setting him up. And for any reasonable human being that's not living with emotions that are driving his passions, this would have been the clear point in the narrative where he takes her to task and says, I knew you were trying to set me up. Get out of here. Right? There's no way that any of us would allow ourselves to be that vulnerable again once we know we're in the wrong. And then what we know as we think back on our own lives is he did that such stupid thing, but our lives look incredibly similar. Verse 10 says, then Delilah said to Samson, and I will just caveat it by saying this, what she says to him is highly manipulative. She says, as she's trying to kill him, behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. This, this is manipulation at a whole nother level, isn't it? This isn't kind of messed up. This is absurd. She's the one that's wrong, and, and she's the one with the false motives. 
And then she does this thing that people do. She starts manipulating him to get her way. She gets busted and she blames. And she plays the victim, which is a bit nauseating. And she's going to do it again. She's going to keep upping the ante. And we're thinking to ourselves, how could he be so stupid? I will tell you this, just a little insight in the last however many years of my life working with people. Um, I just feel like this is worth bringing up. This is why I love this story. This stuff happens all the time. And so when people are wrong, people are living in sin, oftentimes when they're called to task for what they're doing, they will go into victim mode because they don't know what to do and they want to control the narrative. Uh, So for example, obviously never giving any details of anything someone tells me in counseling, but just as a broad statement, this happens all the time. Men do this and women do this. There'll be either a man or a woman who's not being faithful or flirting with things that aren't faithful in their life and all of a sudden their cell phone becomes very private and their spouse starts getting confused, and all of a sudden, the, the, you know, the phone will be on the bedside, and it'll buzz, and the spouse, you know, there's all sorts of narratives. I'm just picking a fictitious one that's happened, coincidentally, a lot of times in a different form. But the phone will buzz, and the person knows something's off, and they see the phone, or maybe they took it a step further, and they, and they went and they grabbed the phone, and they looked at it, and they saw that person, and their heart sank because that's the person they've been worried about, and they know their spouse is off, and their spouse gets caught red-handed, and they say, why is this person texting you, or why are you having this type of conversation? And what will happen, it's just like Delilah. What they'll do is they'll flip it around and they'll gaslight them and they'll manipulate them and they'll go, why are you looking at my phone? How could you do that? And as a husband of 20 years, just kind of reading the narrative, as a pastor, as a counselor, as a husband, I'm going, wait a minute, maybe they shouldn't have done that, but, but why are you having a, a relationship with someone that's not your spouse? Do you see the connection? Does that make sense? That the same stuff happens today. She's saying this, how could you lie to me? He's going, lie to you? I was telling you something so you wouldn't kill me. And in her manipulation, she's feeling sorry for herself. And so Samson, he's wrong too, right? He's messed up. He says, well, it's not the bowstrings. You caught me. You have to have new rope and tie me up. If you have new rope and tie me up, then, then you could take my strength. And so she gets him drunk. Tells him the Philistines are coming. He has the new rope on him. He's asleep. He's passed out. And then he snaps the new rope in all of his pride, like, you can't stop me. And then she takes it up a notch again. She says, why do you keep lying to me? You can hear her nauseating tears. He says this. He says, well, that's a lie too, but if you tie up my hair, then I'm going to lose my strength. She ties up his hair. And that doesn't work. And then she says, how can you say, this is the height of the manipulation. Just imagine beautiful Delilah trying to have his life taken for money. She said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? And at that point in the narrative, I'm throwing up in my mouth a little bit. Are you tracking? How can you say you love me if you won't let me murder you? You have mocked me with these three things. And you have not told me where your great strength lies And when she pressed him hard, this is the dysfunction of their codependent relationship. When she pressed him hard with her words day after day, this translates in the NIV, nagging and prodding, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. That vexed word needs to be underlined. Vexed is what happens when you continually move in the wrong direction and God starts pounding away at the things that are true in your life and you're exhausted from the sin that you keep chasing. He's not just distraught. 
He's not just tired. The nagging and the prodding won't stop. He is vexed. He is exhausted. How can you say you love me? Verse 17, and he told her with all his heart, and he said to her in this vexed fashion, finally, he gives it up. He says, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. He finally tells the truth. She cuts his hair. The Bible says the Spirit of God left him, not because of hair, but because of his heart. And the next thing you know, he's losing his life. Verse 21, and the Philistines seized him and gouged his eyes out and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. I heard a commentator say this. I want to share this with you. I read this. It is quite possible when all of this went down that before his eyes were gouged out, the last thing he sees is this deceptive, manipulative person in his life. And what I also want to bring to light before we just write down a few key thoughts on this text is this, that although Delilah is manipulative, although Delilah is ungodly, uh, the reality of Delilah is she's not the real problem. His heart is the problem. And what I've found to be true in my life and in people that I've worked with's lives is this. If your heart is not right, hear me say this. If your heart is not right, there will always be a Delilah. She is not the main problem. She's just a means to an end where the enemy is going to attack where you're weak. And, and Delilah doesn't even have to, she can represent so many things. It doesn't have to be an affair in your life, and hopefully, because there are consequences to that, trust me, hopefully that's not your situation, but there will always be a Delilah around the corner when you say to God, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to have boundaries and guardrails that I deem worthy of my time because I'm the one to be worshipped and I'm the one in control. And here's what I want you to hear this morning before we get into this fall season in our next sermon series. I just felt like God wanted us to share this story this morning at church. I want you to write something down that I wrote down on my phone in 2018 in September. I wrote it down and I found it and I want you to hear it. God's boundaries are a gift and not a punishment in your life. God's not punishing you with boundaries. And what does it look like to trust him with everything, even those things that you might think are nonsensical in your life, that he is taking those things and he knows what's best for you and they're actually a gift to protect you and they're not a punishment in your life. There are certain things that we put in place. One of the things Ann and I decided on early on in our marriage was we're not going to be closer to the opposite sex than the person that we're married to is close to him. So if, if she has someone in her life that's a male, then it's okay. You know, she knows him, but if I'm not close to him, then she's not going to be close to him. I'm always going to be closer because that's the way it's supposed to be and vice versa. And that's protected our marriage. There are certain things that God puts in place and they're for our protection. The, the second thing is this. Right, this is really kind of like for me, a light bulb moment. I already knew this, but I want you to hear it. God's boundaries are a gift and not a punishment, but the way that this thing dominoes out, that first domino, and I want you to hear me say this, this is critical, that first domino will always, always be rooted in pride. Always be rooted in pride. It takes you over here to a place that you thought you never would go, but before it ever manifests in the physical, it always starts with the heart, and the heart 
that sense to have these dominoes fall down is always rooted in pride. And pride, what I wrote to myself, is the precursor for unnecessary pain. We all have pain. Some pain is unavoidable. Some pain, God will use all pain. Some pain is in place just because that's how life happens. There is other pain that happens because you're not following God. Infidelity pain, perfect example, is a pain that's avoidable in your life. Pain is always the precursor for unnecessary, pride is always the precursor for unnecessary pain in your life. I was asking Siri, the girl I talk to more than Ann sometimes, what is, what is a precursor? Because I, I had that thought that I wrote down and I thought I knew what it meant, but then I thought there's people way smarter at New Life than me, at least like probably half the church. I'm not like a really, you know, I'm definitely not a vocab expert. So I thought there's going to be some English major that's like, well, that's not what precursor means. And I'm going to feel like an idiot in front of everyone. And so I said, Siri, what is precursor? And to my surprise, she said something at a biological level uh, using science. She said, in chemistry, Rodney, a precursor is a compound that participates in a chemical reaction that produces another compound. And I thought, what? But then it made sense. I thought, oh, that's like the same thing. And I'm sure there's different definitions, but I'm going to say that again. In chemistry, a precursor is a compound that participates in a chemical reaction that produces another compound. And I thought, wow, I'm smarter than I realized because that's the dominoes. It starts here. I'm like, man, this is a word from the Lord. Siri told me. It starts over here, and it ends over here, but the precursor in the first domino is pride, and then that falls and has a chemical reaction. That falls and has a chemical reaction, and all of a sudden, you're over here in a situation where there's pain all around you, and your family's devastated, and in your heart, the first domino, the first precursor was pride. And in your pride, you thought you could handle something that you couldn't handle because you played with fire. The reality of Samson's story, when he thought that he was doing what he wanted and it didn't matter, is someone always gets hurt, don't they? You, you, you tell yourself you can do what you want and no one gets hurt, but on a practical level, Samson's story is extreme, but we can relate. Samson's first wife burned to death. Samson's eyes, his beautiful, good-looking eyes, gouged out. He's chasing Delilah. You can rest assured his kids are devastated. His church, I'm just relating it to us now, he's chasing the next Delilah on social media. He's literally caused his church more heartache and his pastors more heartache than he even realizes. All sorts of extra work, all sorts of emotional pain, people let down, things happening that he never thought would happen, financial burdens on society as a result in the trillions for wraparound services. This whole idea of marriages breaking up for precursors for unnecessary pain is something that causes society all sorts of physical, emotional pain, and it costs a financial cost that's in the trillions. Kids that learn not to trust and run a high risk of repeating the cycle because you had this sin in your heart, this boundary that was broken, and you thought in your sin and in your pride you'd never go there. Samson's story looks like ours. There are a few key reasons that we end up like Samson, and they tend to be driven by these two things I've learned in counseling, working with people. Affairs are typically driven by two things. At its heart level, it's not really lust, but it is ego, and it's insecurity. It's fantasy land. Your life gets mundane, you get a little bored, 
all of a sudden, someone tells you how great you are, and in your own pride and in your own ego, even on a practical level, if you know practically it's probably not true, you want to believe what you want to believe. You want that endorphin release, and now someone's getting hurt, you're getting hurt, your family's getting hurt. This is how it all plays out. Pride is the precursor. Here's the last thing. I want you to hear this twice. I'm going to say it twice, so write it down if you want to. Prison walls. Prison walls are built around delusions of freedom. I'm going to say it one more time so we're all tracking. When it comes to the story and narrative of Samson's life, prison walls, for him became physical, but for us they're spiritual. Prison walls are built around delusions of freedom. There is a promise that doesn't play. There's a promise in culture that if we want to express our sexuality or any sin in our lives the way we see fit, that that's really not a prison for us. That's a freedom that we can walk in. And sometimes I follow Yahoo News because I just want to get, you know, like what's going on in culture around us. And there's almost always this idea where someone has this news story where they're doing something that's sinful and they're going, I finally feel free in expressing myself the way that I want to express myself. And it's always this cultural promise, and it's always rooted in this lie, right, that God wants me to be happy. That's usually the underground, like most people aren't atheists. That's kind of what surfaces in that lie. And the reality is this. God might want you to be happy, but your definition of happy is way off. God wants you to be holy. God wants you to have joy. And sometimes that means actually you know, walking with him through hardship and dealing with dysfunctions rather than chasing empty rainbows. And so those delusions of freedom that you think are really releasing your heart are actually building prison walls around your heart. And the gospel is this. Jesus comes to earth. He preaches this great sermon right from the Old Testament. He gets in a synagogue early in his ministry. This is how he starts the whole thing. He says to these people, he says, I have come to set the captive free. Liberate. But what we know from the gospel is this profound and counterintuitive reality that prison walls are built around delusions of freedom. Paul says, he who the Son set free is free indeed. But our delusions of freedom are actually creating the bondage. I really feel like God just put this on my heart about a month ago. I knew I was going to be talking about Samson before we hit the fall. But what does it look like to to bring these things to God and to say to him in a very humble way, God, you know the desires that I have. You you know that in my heart I I have these selfish things that I've been carrying around, these wills, this will that I have to do what I want to do. And I don't even understand it because it's so enticing right now. I'm so weak in my flesh. There are certain things that are just enticing me. But I'm going to trust that your boundaries, that the Bible is true, that the gospel is true, I'm gonna trust that your boundaries are put in place for a reason so that I can have life. And even when I feel like you may be in my life, you're being a fun killer, I'm gonna trust the process and I'm just gonna trust that your ways are good in my life. And I'm gonna allow you to have these boundaries around my heart to protect me and to protect my family. This is something, this is one of the reasons why we're so tied into the recovery model at New Life. These are things that addicts, recovering addicts, know to be true. This isn't theory. They know that there are lives that we believe, that there are prison walls that we put up in our life 
and there are things that we chase, there are adrenalines that we pursue in our life that fall short of everything they thought we thought they were going to be. And ultimately, the Bible says it, these things bring something, but what they bring is not life. They bring death and destruction. Jesus, the author and, protect, and uh, author of the faith, is saying to his church, he's saying, you need boundaries, and hear my heart as the Savior. Take these boundaries because I love you and I want to protect you. I want to take new life as this fall kicks off and people are everywhere. This is the calm before the storm, and I want to put it on display, but I don't want to put it on display in a way where you're doing whatever you want and you're bringing shame on the local church because your ways are not of me. I want to protect your family. I want to protect your homes. And I want you to love me and serve me, and I want you to experience the freedom that I've called you to having these boundaries. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. As we walk into the fall, this, this, this whole idea of Samson really is an idea more than just a specific reality on sexual sin. We all have these things that we chase. God, as a people, help us to examine our hearts this morning. To ask ourselves the hard questions. What false idols need to be torn down? What acts of obedience do we need to push through even when we don't feel a certain way? We thank you for your church. We thank you for your blood that was shed, your body that was crucified so that we can have life. We love you. We repent of our sins and we follow you with our whole heart. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.